0: Well, I invite you to take your Bible for the time of reading and preaching of the Word. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Maybe you have heard people talk about a pinky promise or a pinky swear, as some kids might say it. One young little boy said, I pinky promise to his friend that we will still be best friends even when we're old and when we're in nursing homes and we will chase each other around in our mobile chairs. One little girl said to her friend, let's pinky swear that we will be best friends even when we're old. One six-year-old said to a friend, I won't tell anyone what you said to me. I pinky promise. A little child said this, I love you to infinity and beyond. That's a pinky promise, he said. It's a cute way of saying, I will never ever break a promise. It's a way of saying, my word is unbreakable, and it has floated around our culture. But today, this afternoon, as we open the Bible, I don't have a pinky promise for you. I have something far better. I'm going to give you a divine promise today. In fact, many of them. A promise of God is far better, far greater, far more lasting, far more eternal. And and a promise of God is a declaration of assurance that God has given. God's promises are always dependable. They're always beneficial. They're always hopeful. A divine promise will always rest on the character of God, the power of God, the unchanging truthfulness of God. That's why you can take a promise from God, from the Bible to the bank, and you can say, I know this promise will never fail. It'll never fail. On one occasion, a mother was at home and she was suspicious because the upstairs bedroom where her young boy was was uncharacteristically quiet. And so she goes up the stairs and she opens the bedroom door to wonder what her young boy is doing and to her shock she walks in and she finds the young boy standing on a big black bible that belonged to her dad to his dad. And the mother said, "What are you doing?" And the young boy replied, with all seriousness, we sang it in church on Sunday. I'm standing on the promises of God. We sing that here as well. I will stand on every promise of God's word. We want to do that today. We want to learn and love and enjoy and stand upon the promises of God. And so as we do that, follow with me as I read our passage as we look at the promises of our great God in Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, he interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever forever, According to the order of Melchizedek. This amazing portion in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, listen, it's all encouragement. This is all encouragement today. This is a portion of the Bible given by God to comfort you. It is given by God to assure you. It is given by God to remind you of your security that you have in God. The point of the whole section of Hebrews six thirteen to 20, and, and all the unshakable comforts and assurances here is really found at the end of verse 18. Look at it here. Here's the whole point of the text. Why? Verse 18 says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to do what? To take hold of the hope that is set before us. This section is all comfort. It is all encouragement to the people of God, full of promises, full of assurances, full of eternal security and full of God's truthful word. Christian, what I want to do this afternoon with you as we preach, as I preach through this section in Hebrews 6, I want you to have unshakable comfort. I want you to have heartwarming assurance because our text brings out three unshakable certainties. You've got to get these. In fact, they're, I've worded them simply. You can memorize them. Boys and girls, you can memorize this. And you can quiz your dad and mom on the way home tonight to make sure they were listening to the sermon. Three unshakable certainties that you can have from the text number one, God's promise. Number two, God's character. And number three, God's son. You can have comfort in life, you can have assurance in life because of three unshakable certainties. What are they? God's promise, God's character, and God's son. And as we walk through this portion of the Bible, you will see the love of God, the heart of God, the assurance of God, the comfort of God, so that you'll leave from here with great heartwarming assurance. So let's begin. What's the first unshakable certainty? It's found in verses 13 to 15. You can have certainty because of God's promise. God's promise. Let let me reword this for a moment just to kind of begin this main point here. Your Christian hope, your Christian comfort is grounded in the promise of God. You can have comfort, you can have hope, you can have assurance because of the promise of God. Now, where we left off last week was chapter 6 and verse 12, where the author said, I don't want you to be sluggish, but I want you to be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, have inherited the promises. In other words, I want you to be inheritors, I want you to be imitators, I want you to follow the example of others. Here's a great example. Abraham. Well, let's think about Abraham. Talking about following the example. Talk about imitating those who have inherited the promise. Here's the classic example. Let's talk about Abraham for a minute. Now, this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. It begins in Genesis chapter 12. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. And when God made this unconditional, unilateral, unbreakable covenant to the man Abram, God promised him three main things in Genesis 12. A land, a seed, and a blessing. A land, a seed, and a blessing. And It's not only found in Genesis 12, we find it again in Genesis 15, and then it's repeated in Genesis 17, and then it's repeated in Genesis 21, and then it's repeated in Genesis 22. It's important. God has made a promise to the man Abraham. But the point of the Abrahamic promise here in Hebrews 6 is that God has made a promise that a descendant would come from Abraham and through which God would, of course, bless the world. And that promise is the man, Isaac. What's really fascinating about all of this is when God made that initial promise to the man, Abraham, you're going to have a son. Guess what? He had to wait, wait for it, 25 years. Well, that's exactly what our text says in verse 12, where we ended last week. So that you won't be sluggish, but you will be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's consider Abraham. God said that you're going to have a son and you're going to have a child, you and Sarah. And he's like, well, when's that going to happen? I'm old. My wife is old. How's this going to happen? Twenty five years. 25 years. And then Isaac is born. Genesis chapter 21. He's born. The promise was fulfilled. And then we turn to the very next chapter in Genesis chapter 22. And you're probably familiar with this. In Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take that son, yeah, the, the son of the promise right there. The one that I said is going to be born to you and Sarah, I want you to go up and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me on the mountains of Moriah. What? What, what, what do you mean? But he's the son of the promise. He's the son of the promise that would make Abraham into a great nation. And yet Abraham is a man of faith. He follows what God tells him to do. In Genesis chapter 22, he passed the test of faith. And you know the story. He takes his son and he, and he binds him on the altar and he puts wood on top of his son Isaac. And he raises the knife to kill his son. And God says, Abraham. Abraham. Abraham, stop. God intervened and, and God stopped him and God provided a substitute. You know the story. He provided the ram as a substitute that Abraham offered in the place of the son, Isaac. Oh, what intervention. What, what, what substitution. What compassion. What an amazing God. What a plan of God. What patience and faith of Abraham. Right after that, right after that, in Genesis chapter 22, we could read it in verse 16. God says this, By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and you have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed will possess the gate of their enemies. God said to Abram, you've passed the test and I'm going to bless you greatly and I'm going to multiply you greatly. Abraham was a man of faith. He was a man who received a promise from God, and get this, he believed God. He obeyed God. He lived by it. He depended upon the promise of God. Abraham saw the fulfillment of that promise 25 years later when Isaac was actually born, and then When God told him to offer the son as a sacrifice, he still obeyed the Lord. And he thought, God, are you really going to come through with this? I mean, how's this whole thing going to work? You made a promise. It's been very clear. You've repeated it a number of times. Are you really going to come through? I mean, it seems so impossible. Maybe you and I have had those thoughts. Maybe you and I have wondered that sometimes. Boy, how's the Lord going to come through on this? How's God going to work here? I mean, it seems like, like there's just no way out. Of course, the Abrahamic covenant still remains. We read in Hebrews 6, about that very event. Look at the text with me. Hebrews 6, verse 13. When God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And now he's going to quote from Genesis 22, right after Abram Obeyed God and was going to sacrifice his son Isaac. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Verse 15. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Abram patiently waited. He obtained the promise. What's that? The son of the promise, Isaac. This is huge. Because God gave his word. Genesis 12 and the covenant. And then he repeated it in Genesis 15, and then he said it again in Genesis 17. What's the point of all of this? God is faithful to his promise, and you can depend on it even when you're confused about what God is doing. And even when it seems like God isn't working according to your timetable. I mean, 25 years is a long time to wait. But he waited. Abraham knew it. He believed it. He trusted. It's almost like our text in Hebrews chapter 6 is saying, Church, let's consider Abraham. I mean, I want you to think about the patience of Abraham, the faith of Abraham, the perseverance of Abraham, how God gave Abraham a promise, and guess what Abraham did? He held on to God's promise, however impossible it may have seemed. He held on to the promise of God because he knew that God was faithful. He knew that God was reliable. He knew that God was true. And it's like the author is saying, church, you should do the same. Believe the promise of God. Believe the promise of God. Let me give you a couple examples. Romans 4, verse 5. The one who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, the text says, his faith is credited as righteousness. Talk about a promise. That if I believe in God who justifies the ungodly, that faith in God, in Christ, is credited as righteousness. Righteousness. Later on in Romans 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's a promise. Romans 8, 37, the Bible says that we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. Romans 10, 9, here's another promise. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, here it is, you will be saved. I mean, do you hear those promises? Do you hear what God has said? It's almost like the author of Hebrews is saying, I know I just told you to not be sluggish, and I want you to follow the example. I want you to imitate the example of those who had to be patient to obtain the promises. Look at Abraham and see how patient he was. God made a promise. And you take God at his word. So let's go back to it. How can you have comfort? How can you have assurance? Where can you get these unshakable certainties in your Christian life? First, from God's promise. You know, by the way... Just maybe a little footnote for all of us. You and I are now living in the new covenant age. You and I are living in the new covenant age. We have more, many, many more promises than Abraham ever did. Many promises. So here's what we ought to do with the promises all through the Bible. Number one, we ought to know them. Number two, we ought to believe them. Number three, I think we ought to pray them. And number four, we ought to rejoice in them. Through patience and perseverance, we obtain the promise. Abraham did the same. You can go here tonight, from here, out these doors. You can be talking with one another, fellowshipping with one another. And you can ask the question, so what promise can you go from here today encouraged with? And use that to sharpen one another. Use that to encourage one another. Use that to edify one another in these unshakable certainties. Number one, God's promise. Let me give you number two, another way in which the author brings this out in Hebrews chapter 6. Not only can we have great comfort and assurance in the promise of God, number two, if you're taking notes, the character of God, God's character. Yes, our Christian hope and our comfort is grounded in the character of God, the character of God. Now, these words in these verses, 16 to 18, are quite interesting because they revolve around this topic of oath, an oath. Now, what's an oath? I mean, we just talk about promises. What's an oath? Well, an oath is a confirmation of something. An oath is what puts an end to a matter. An oath is is when you, you You make an oath by someone of a a higher authority so that it is the end of every dispute. It's the end of every matter. There's nothing more that needs to be said. Look at verse 16. Hebrews 6, verse 16. For men swear by one greater than themselves... And with them an oath given as a confirmation, which is an end of every dispute. I mean, that happens in courts as well. Verse 17, in the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, he interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Why does God make an oath? Why does God make an oath? I mean, it's like God is condescending to us, and it's like God is saying, I, I-, I want to doubly give confirmation to you. No, no, no. I want to triply give confirmation to you. No, no, no. I want to abundantly confirm to you my promise, my plans, my decrees that they are sure. God graciously wants to show his people if you look at verse 17 the unchangeableness of his purpose. God wants to show you the total trustworthiness of his word. It's God condescending to us saying, let me give you an oath. Not because God's word is in doubt, but because we are often the ones in doubt. We often fear. We often forget. We often doubt. We often distrust God. We need assurance. And God condescends to us in amazing humility and compassion and tenderness. And he just gives another layer of assurance. I give you my promise, but now let me give you an oath. By the way, that's verse 18. By the two unchangeable things, what are the two unchangeable things? It's the promise and the oath. It's the promise and the oath. It's remarkable to me that God does this. I mean, He doesn't have to do this, He could just say, Hey, I already told you the word, believe it. But out of tender compassion, out of love. He wants for you to know the unchangeableness of God's decree. So imagine if I was to handwrite a letter and I was going to mail it to you. Maybe an illustration could be helpful. So I write a letter and I want to send it to you and I'm going to take it to the post office and I put your name and your address and and I put a stamp on the top of that envelope and it's going to go to you across town. But if but if I think it's a little heavy and, and I just want to be really sure that that envelope is going to get all the way to you, maybe I'll put a couple of stamps on there. And if I kind of want to go overboard, I might put three stamps on there, maybe four. Surely it'll get there. You know what God is doing in verses 16 to 18 right here? It's like God is smothering the entire envelope with stamps. So that you are super duper doubly triply sure that my God keeps his word. That's what he's doing. And all of this is grounded in the character of God. It's all grounded in the character of God. Now notice this. Because we read in verse 16, men swear by one greater, right? In the law courts, you know, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? That that happens in the courts. By a higher authority. Well, there's no higher authority than God. Who, who's he going to swear by? Well, that tells us right here in verse 16, And 17, that God is supreme. His character is supreme. There's no one greater than God. There's no one higher than God. God swears by no one greater because there is none greater than God. Our God is absolutely supreme. So you and I can be comforted because of the character of God because he's supreme. Second, the character of God, he's also immutable. He doesn't change. We see that right here in verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things, God doesn't change. His promise doesn't change. His oath doesn't change. His character doesn't change. Guess what? You and I change. You and I can make a promise. We could break it. We could, we could not be faithful to our word, but not so with God. He's immutable. He doesn't change. Third, the character of God is not only supreme and immutable. Third, he's sovereign. And I love that because right here in verse 17, look carefully at your text. I want to show you a word. God desiring to show to the heirs of the promise, that's you and me, the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his... Now, I have purpose in my translation. The Greek word refers to God's decree. God wants you to know the unchangeableness of his sovereign decree. He's the king over all. He's got plans. He's got purposes. He's got got decrees. This God is the Lord, the king, the sovereign over all. He's decreed the end from the beginning. You can trust in this character. He is supreme. He is immutable. He is sovereign. Fourth, he's also truthful. He is truthful. What what does God want to do? Well, he wants you to know in verse 18 that by two unchangeable things, the oath and the promise, by the way, it's impossible for God to lie. I mean, what a truthful God we have. What a God of veracity. What a God of dependability. What a God who is truthful. You can take every promise to the bank and say, my God is truth. We see that God is supreme. We see the immutability of God. He is sovereign. We see that he is truthful. And then there is another character trait of God. He is powerful. And it's right here in verse 18. It is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Did you see that? We who have taken refuge. Refuge. What a great word. Refuge. What a great concept. Now, the word here is intended for us to go back in our mind in biblical revelation to the cities of refuge in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. And here's what would go on there in the Old Testament times and this law that God gave through Moses to the people of Israel. If you were living in that time and you had accidentally killed someone, if you're out in the field and you have a malfunction of some of the instruments or something happens and your neighbor is killed by your hands, accidentally you run to one of the six designated cities of refuge, three on each side of the Jordan River. And you would run there for safety. You would run there for protection. You would run there for care. And the author is saying, remember the refuge there? We can take refuge and have strong encouragement in our God. We know that Jesus is a ready refuge, an available refuge, a strong refuge. He's a sufficient refuge and he saves us. Not just from somebody running to kill me for revenge, but Jesus saves me from the wrath of God. Jesus saves me from the sin and the punishment that I deserve. I set my face toward Christ and I run to him for safety and for security and joy and rest. Do you see the character of God here? God is supreme. God is unchangeable. God is sovereign. God is truthful. God is a strong, powerful refuge. And do we need more reasons to have comfort here this afternoon? That God wants us to depend upon him and his word. We can have comfort. We can have assurance. We can have rest for our soul. Why? Well, we saw first because of the promise of God and now second because of the character of God but let's pause you know that but if you're like me sometimes we can practically lose confidence in God we know theologically we shouldn't do that but sometimes we do 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 you doubt God how do you know if you doubt God? How do you know that you lose confidence in God? Here's how we know. You fear. How do we know that we are doubting God? You lose sleep because you're worrying too much. How do you know that you're doubting God because you're trying to take matters into your own hands because you've got to get things done your way? How do you know if you're doubting God? You'll pray later, but you got to take action first and get things done according to your plan. How do you know if you're doubting God? Your mind is filled with the unknown what-if scenarios. Rather than confidently resting on the God-has-said promises. What if, what if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? And you're worrying and you're fretting and you're fearful and you're anxious. We're all there. We're all there. And the author, in amazing wisdom, guided by the Holy Spirit as he's writing this down for us, he says, I want you to have comfort i want you to have assurance i I want you to have confidence in god i want you to know the uncertainty of god's character so if that's true of you if some of these ways are true of you and you think man that's me i'm 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 doubting god sometimes so then pastor jeff how do i rebuild my confidence in god And I'm glad you asked because I have five ways, okay? Number one, rehearse God's faithful track record. Rehearse it and go ahead and start in Genesis and just walk through biblical revelation at the promise after promise after promise that God gave. And you think, wow, God was faithful to Adam and Eve. He's faithful to Enoch. He was faithful to Noah, faithful to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on and on we could go. I mean, all through biblical revelation, we can rehearse the faithful track record and we can say, our God is reliable. Second, what we can also do is we can read and reread and rejoice in God's word. Rejoice in God's word. Now, that's kind of like an obvious, of course we know that. But yet to anchor our hearts in the living and transforming word of God is vital, vital. So you rehearse God's faithful track record. You read and reread and rejoice in God's word. Let me give you a third way that you can rebuild, as it were, this confidence in God. Number three, reflect on theology to know God deeper. Reflect on theology. character of God, the character of Christ, the character of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of end times. To know the living God. Fourth, how can we rebuild confidence in God? We must resolve to divest ourselves of self. And invest in the others in the church. Divest yourself of you and invest in other people. Because when we lose confidence in God, guess what happens? You begin to try to have great confidence in self. And one of the beautiful ways to fight against that is to serve one another. Serve one another. A fifth way that we can continue to grow in our confidence in God, number five, is to journal how God answers even the smallest of your prayers. Mom and dad, do this even with your kids. How has God answered? What's a prayer that you've prayed this week? What's a prayer that you've prayed this year? What's something that you're asking God to do? And when he does it, you journal it. And you remember that like a little Ebenezer, to remember what God has done. You see, all of this in Hebrews 6 is meant to encourage the people of God. Look, they were going through difficult times. They were going through hard times. They had difficult lives. They had suffering. They had persecution. And the author says, I want you to have unshakable confidence, number one, because of God's promise, number two, because of God's character. But the author gives us one more. And if you're taking notes, jot down this third unshakable certainty that we ought to have. God's promise, God's character, and now third, God's Son. His Son. And what that means is that our Christian hope, our Christian comfort, is grounded, secure in the Son of God of God so verse 18 ended we can have strong encouragement that's what God wants you to have strong encouragement To take hold of the hope set before us. You think, well, what hope is that? Look at verse 19. Look in your Bible. Verse 19. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast. And one which enters within the veil. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Having become a high priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek. Let's talk about God's son for a minute. In a couple of words, Jesus is your hope. He's your hope. That's that's what it says. Verse 19, this hope that we have. Verse 18 tells us that we who have taken refuge take hold of the hope that is set before us. We run for refuge to Jesus Christ in confident assurance of hope. We could sit here today and say, you know, I really hope the Cardinals win the World Series this year. Well, they may or they may not. But that's not biblical hope, that's just a wish. Biblical hope is not a wish, biblical hope is a certainty. And that's what we read in verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. So let me me illustrate it like this. Imagine there's a man and he's running for refuge because he knows he's a great sinner. He's a great sinner. He sees his sin, he knows his sin, he repents of his sin, and he flees to Jesus Christ, the sin bearer. And he flees to him directly, exclusively, believingly. And yet, and yet, his thoughts of his past and all the faults that he's done, they plague him. They haunt him. His failures and his evils and his wicked deeds are assaulting him continually. But he keeps running from it all and he keeps running to Christ. He keeps running to Christ. He has no comfort. He has no joy until he finds his refuge in Christ. So when hopelessness comes his way, when despair comes his way, when guilt and grief and punishment and pain and and uncertainty, you run to Jesus again as your hope, as your hope. So you say, Jeff, what is hope? Hope is certainty that is fixed upon God. And that's what Jesus is. He's our hope. We who have taken refuge, verse 18 says, we have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. And this hope that we have is an anchor for the soul. So we talk about God's son. First, he is our hope. Second, he is our anchor. He's your anchor. So now we come to another image. Another metaphor, another picture. He's an anchor. Verse 19, see it there in your Bible. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul. You know, if you and I traveled to Rome and we were sort of crawling our way through the catacombs of Of Rome, where the early Christians would often hide in the times of persecution, one of the most common symbols that we would find etched on the wall would be an anchor. Anchors are important. Anybody on the waters knows that. And the hope that we have is an anchor, verse 19, of the soul. Why? why? Why that? Why, why mention an anchor for the soul? Because it keeps you secure during the turbulent, troubling winds and storms of life. Kind of like an anchor would guard and protect and keep a boat or a ship from drifting. Drifting. Sailors throw their anchors downward into the dark waters, but isn't it interesting? Christians throw our anchor upward into heaven. Instead of drifting, we are anchored heavenward in Christ. And this is so amazing how the Holy Spirit puts this here in verse 19. This anchor for the soul, keep reading, it is a hope both sure and steadfast. The word sure means it is unbreakable and the word steadfast means it cannot change. You cannot break the anchor of Christ, and he's not going to change. He's not going to edit his word. He's not going to revise it. He's not going to come out with a second edition. It's like the author is saying, church, you need amazing comfort and encouragement And hope that Jesus is your sturdy anchor. He is your reliable anchor. He is your sure anchor. He is your dependable anchor. And guess what? Our world knows that the world is messed up, but they have nowhere to anchor their souls. I mean, they're trying anything and everything. But we have an anchor for the soul. Well, we learn of the son, the son of God. He is hope. He is anchor. Third, he's our priest. Well, what, what, what does this one do? Well, now we switch to another metaphor, another picture altogether. We, we've left the hope and we've left the anchor, but now he's building on all of that. He's, he's building an argument to encourage you. And what is it? This anchor for our soul is sure and steadfast, verse 19, and he is one which enters within the veil. And if we need more clarity, just look at verse 20. Here's who he is, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become, here it is, a high priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek, Jesus is your priest who has entered within the veil, the veil. That means one thing. Jesus, as the high priest, has gone into the holy of holies. He, he has gone into the Holy of Holies. And yet, let's just remember a little bit in the, in the temple that Herod the Great refurbished in the first century, the Jewish Talmud tells us that that veil was 60 feet by 30 feet and it was four inches thick. The Jewish Talmud tells us that it was so heavy it took 300, 300 priests to hang the veil. And when... A priest would go into that temple complex and he does the priestly duties. There's that massive veil, that massive curtain in front of him separating the holy place from the holy of holies. And when the priest looks at the veil, it's almost like the veil is screaming, God is holy. And sinful man can't come in here. Sinful man can't come in here. You cannot have access to this one. There's a veil. This is the same veil, by the way, in Matthew 27 that was torn in two from top to bottom when Christ made atonement for us. So our hope depends on the work of Jesus on the cross. Our hope depends on the atoning work of Christ at Calvary. What's the author saying? Church, be encouraged. Don't look at yourself. Don't look to your situation, don't look to your possibilities, don't look inside, don't look on the inward parts of your desire and your heart and all these things. Don't look to your past, don't look to your kids, don't look to your money. Rather, look to Jesus. Look to the cross. That's where you find hope and that's where you find security at the cross. And it's almost like God is saying, you do it once, but you keep doing it. And you do it again and you do it again and you keep believe. But if you're here today. And Jesus is not your high priest that veil is still up between you and God screaming, God is holy, you can't come in here. And so what you must do is you must come right now at once by faith alone. You must come to Christ believingly, humbly, acknowledging that you have sinned against God. There's a separation between you and God. You could never come to God on your own. You could never bring yourself to God on your own. You could never do anything to work your way to God by your own goodness. God has already declared about you. You have none. But Jesus, verse 19, has entered within the veil. What you can't do, guess what? He did it. Which leads to the next word. He is, we saw first our hope, and then our anchor, and then our priest, and now fourth, this son of God is your forerunner. He is your forerunner. So verse 19 says that Jesus is the hope, sure and steadfast, which enters within the veil. Verse 20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner. Now that's shocking to me because no priest of old was a forerunner. Because nobody came behind him into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. It was only him. The high priest was a representative, but not a forerunner. But Jesus is a forerunner. He he brings you to God. You come to the immediate presence of Almighty God. That's why 1 Peter 3.18 says that Jesus died the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. A forerunner. What 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 an interesting image. Okay, so imagine that you're at a school football game, elementary school football game. And the team is getting ready to go on the field and they leave the locker room and all these little kids have all their pads on and their helmet on and they're ready to hit the field and begin the game. And the team captain, he comes out first. But on the field, ready and waiting for the team to arrive are some coaches and maybe some parents and they've got a large paper banner. And that paper banner might say, go team or win or something like that. And so this little captain, he's leading the charge. He's the forerunner. And he's going to break through that paper onto the field. And guess what? He's not alone, but the team comes after him. Jesus is our forerunner. He has gone first and he entered within the veil. The whole team, meaning all believers, all the redeemed, all those washed in the blood of Christ, follow behind him. Let's put it in a promise. You will follow behind him. If Jesus is the forerunner, then we are the afterrunners. And if he has run hard to do the work of redemption for us, let's run hard to pursue him. Let's run hard to pursue him with thankful hearts for what he's done for us. Like the 144,000, Revelation 14, verse 4, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. There's a couple of words in the middle of verse 20. Jesus entered as a forerunner. Don't miss these two words for us. The Greek phrase has this idea, for our benefit. He is our forerunner for our benefit. He is our forerunner for our advantage. He is our forerunner for our gain. I mean, do you hear the hope that is just oozing out of these verses today? The author is writing to the congregation, and he says, I want you to have unshakable certainty in God. Because of his promise, because of his character, and because of his son. Here's what's so great about all this. Everything that we've looked at today, every single thing. Are you ready for this? Number one, it's objective. These are fixed realities. It's based on divine fact, not your fickle feelings. Why? I don't don't feel secure today. That happens. We have our good days. We have our bad days. But I'm thankful that God's promises are objective. They are fixed realities. Number two, not only are they objective, they're external. They're, they're, They're outside of you. You know what that means? You can't alter it. You can't alter it. You can't change it. Third, these promises are immutable. Everything we've looked at today, they are immutable, meaning they don't change. They can't be revised or redacted or edited. They won't fade away. They won't expire. Everything we've looked at today, the promises of God are eternal. They're forever. Forever. And they are transformational. Meaning, these promises lift you up to heaven in Christ. Because you look to him. You see your hope that is linked with Christ. And he's gone within the veil into the holy of holies. As our forerunner. Boys and girls, I want you to hear something. Listen carefully. One promise from God is worth more than all the money in the world. God hasn't just given you one promise. He's given you a book full of promises. What security, what comfort, what mighty assurance from our heavenly Father. What a God. Listen, God does not want you to doubt he doesn't want you to doubt. He wants you to have secure confidence in him. But, but maybe you're here today and you're full of doubt. Maybe you're here today and your life is filled with, man, I've, I've tried this and I've tried that and I've tried living for self and I've tried living for my pleasure and, and this world is a mess and I don't know where to go. I, I don't have any anchor for my soul. What do you do? You need to look to Christ and turn to him. And this mighty rock and this mighty refuge is an available. He is an inviting. He is a wooing. He is a tender and he is a sufficient savior for all who come to him. I want to close by telling you about a man. His name is Edward moat. He lived in the early 1800s, grew up in England. His parents were pub owners, didn't grow up in a godly home, wasn't taught the Bible as a young boy, didn't even go to church as a young boy. He was taught the trade, however, of being a cabinet maker. So he was good with his hands and good with wood. And graciously, at the age of 15, when he came under the preaching of the word God saved Edward Moat. He lived just outside London. He established quite a successful cabinet making business. Later on in his life, he would become a minister of the gospel in London, but before that, he was a cabinet maker for many, many years. Well, this man would, would go to his trade. And by his own testimony, he would sing hymns throughout the day. He would often write his own hymns while he was on the job during the day. He wrote over a hundred hymns. One morning he said, It it came into my mind as I was going to work today to write to write a hymn on the gracious experience of a Christian. The experience of a Christian. So he went up to his work and he was building cabinets as he did day after day. And he had a chorus that stuck in his mind. And the words were this, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And that was in his head all day long. He said by his own testimony, at the end of that work day, four of the stanzas were completed. It is a hymn that he wrote that affirms Christ as Lord, Christ as Savior, Christ as refuge, who will never, ever fail. He is the solid rock. Jesus is the refuge. He is the secure anchor. He is the forerunner who went within the veil for us. The following Sunday. The following Sunday, after he wrote this hymn, he went to visit a a home of a couple of older saints in the congregation, and the wife was very ill and near death, and the husband informed Edward Mote, it is our habit on the Lord's Day to read a scripture and to sing and to pray together for our family worship, but they couldn't find their hymnal. Edward Mote pulled out of his suit coat pocket the words that he had written. To this hymn that he called. My hope is built on nothing less. They sang this hymn together. My hope is built on nothing less. Than Jesus blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. But wholly lean on Jesus name. When darkness veils his lovely face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale. My Anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood. Support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's anchor our hope in God's promise, in God's character, and in God's Son. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you having feasted upon your word. Our hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. What a kind and compassionate God to give us such confident assurance in your promise, in your character, and in your son. What a glorious refuge he is. What a mighty anchor for the soul. The one who has gone within the veil as a forerunner for us. All glory be to Christ. We pray all these